Hi everyone. So this is long overdue. My week got incredibly busy, unbelievably busy actually. I uh, actually got an earlier start to work than I thought. So it's been a bit of a chaotic week for me. Um, I wanted to do this earlier, but here we are. So if you're new here, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. So the last episode that we talked about was Charles Manson. And the thing about Charles Manson is he was so charismatic and knew instinctively how to control others. So where we left off, Charles Manson has moved to San Francisco. And he's living in Berkeley and he actually shouldn't have been able to get there for because of parole violations, but somehow he managed to get to San Francisco and he was actually okay and wasn't picked up on parole. So he ends up meeting a woman named Mary Brunner. She's a 23-year-old graduate graduate of Wisconsin in Madison. And she was working as a library assistant at the UFC in Berkeley. And Manson somehow pox his way into moving in with her. And initially, he wanted to bring other women into this apartment that he shared with her. And she kept saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with it, blah, blah, blah. I don't want that happening. And it wasn't before long that Charles Manson wore her down. And about, he was living with 18 women at one point in this apartment. And this is during the 1967 Summer of Love, Woodstock, The Beatles, all, all of those things. And it was kind of the, considered one of the hippie movements, if that's a term you like. So Charles Manson establishes himself as this kind of guru. He was this guru of love. He knew what was going to happen. And the thing is, he had no idea what was going to happen, but he used a lot of things to his advantage. Now, he may have borrowed some of his philosophy from the Process Church of Final Judgment. And what would happen in this specific church is the members would believe that Satan would become reconciled to Jesus. And they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. So Manson starts creating this group of followers, which most of them are female. And ironically, he had this ability to wear down females. He would often find women, or young or young women, I should say, ages 14, maybe even 13 and up, and these women would be abused, running away. He would always pick someone with a low self-confidence so that he could mold them into whatever he wanted. And most of the time, what Manson would do is he would strip these women of their inhibitions through drugs and alcohol. Now, he would also teach his followers that he was the reincarnation of the original Christians. And he could be and that his establishment in specific could be characterized as the Romans. And it's somewhere in 1967 he began using the name Charles Willis Manson. Now, before the end of the summer of 67, Charles Manson and some of these women that he were living in Mary Brunner's apartment began traveling in an old school bus and they converted it into sort of like a house on wheel, like a tiny house. Do you see those ads where it's like a house on wheels? Anyways, they use, they, they use buses there. Anyways, so they make this bus into sort of like a little love nest, a little home, and they end up going actually to the area of LA of Topang Topanga Canyon, Malibu, and Venice. All these um, locations are right along the coast. So, it's sometime in 1967. Mary Brunner is pregnant now. And you have to think, this is probably the fourth or fifth, probably maybe sixth child he's had that he generally has no intention of taking care of. And that he has no intention of even doing anything with. So now Mary, on in on April 15th of 1968, she gave birth to their son, 
in a condemned house. So there were no doctors there. There was no any sort of pain medication. And here's the thing. She was assisted by several of these women that were followers of Charles Manson. And I got to tell you, there's so much shit that could have gone wrong. Just giving birth in an abandoned house with no medical training. Like, I understand there are people who are like, we're women. Our bodies know what to do, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I understand that. But what if something went wrong? You could have bled to death in a condemned house. That is just very scary to me. That someone would think, I'm going to give birth in a condemned house. And it's going to be cool. It, it is actually like a, a very big fear of mine to like have an unmedicated, not even an unmedicated, but like not having professional help with pregnancies. Like giving birth, that's an actual fear of mine. Thank God I'm, I'm not having any more, I'm not having kids. Um, so anyway, so Mary ends up acquiring a number of aliases and nicknames, such as Mary Manson, Linda D. Manson, Mariachi, Mother Mary. Like these were all things that she was known by, which is because she gave birth to the child, right? That's why they're calling her Mother Mary. So the weird thing is, Charles Manson actually had a lot of contacts in acting and the music business. And he wanted to be a musician so badly. And there was actually actors in the 60s would have Manson babysit their children. And one actor named Al Lewis actually had Manson babysit his children more than once. And he would describe Manson as this nice guy when he knew him. There's a music producer named Phil Kaufman, who would introduce Manson to Universal Studios, specifically a producer named Gary Stromberg. And this producer was working on an ad, a film adaptation of um, Jesus set in modern America. And within this rendition, it was going to be an African-American Jesus and Southern redneck Romans. And Charles Manson starts making these interesting suggestions about what Jesus might do into a, a, a situation and seemingly was almost uncannily attuning himself to the role. And he would have women kiss his feet, and then he would kiss women's feet. And it just, it got really weird. Just to, and he would do this to demonstrate his place and the place of the woman. So him and Gary Stromberg are at the beach one day, and Gary says to him, you know, I see that you have this furnished bus. Like, aren't you afraid somebody's gonna gonna steal it on you? So Charles Manson tosses the bus keys to someone who doubts that you know, Manson is what who he says he is. And this person steals the bus. And Charles Manson just watches and he's unconcerned. Now, Gary Stromberg states that Charles Manson had this personality. He was able to read a person's emotional weakness and manipulate them. And I tend to agree with that. So here's a really good example of how Charles was easily able to manipulate people. So he tries to manipulate this man named Danny DiCarlo. He's the treasurer of a motorcycle club called the Straight Satans. And he's telling Danny, you know what? You can have access to the family women. And he ends up convincing Danny DiCarlo that his large penis helped keep the women in the group as if that's not disgusting enough that you know that someone thinks that anyways I just I think Charles Manson is gross so and here's the thing he was so far involved with musicians that he actually had a reputation with one of the Beach Boys which was a really popular band in the 60s I would say probably a runner-up for the Beatles. The Beatles were pretty much a, a very strong um, top hit band. So Dennis Wilson, who's in the Beach Boys, picks up Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey. They're hitchhiking. It's spring. It's 1968. They've been drinking. They've taken some LSD. So he takes them to his house. And the next morning he wakes up and Dennis Wilson returns home because he's recording the night. And he's greeted by Charles Manson in the driveway, who comes out of his house. So now Dennis Wilson is like, uh, are you going to kill me? Are you going to rob me? What, what, what are you doing, bud? And Charles Manson says to him, 
he has no intent of doing so. And he begins kissing Dennis Wilson's feet. And once Dennis Wilson gets in the feet, gets in the feet, gets into the house, he sees there's 12 strangers in his house, mostly women. So the thing is, Charles Manson states that he will have met Dennis Wilson at a friend's San Francisco house. And Charles Manson had been going to buy weed, and he claims that Dennis Wilson gave him his Sunset Boulevard address and invites him to stop by at whenever he's in L.A. Now, Dennis Wilson says in a 1968 Record Mirror article, he mentioned the, Be the Beach Boys' involvement with a Maharashi Manesh yogi to a group of strange women, which they respond with, well, we know a guru. His name's Charlie. So there's kind of conflicting accounts here. But what we do know is that Dennis Wilson did have a run-in with Charles Manson. And it's the next couple of months, the number of women seems to increase in Dennis Wilson's house. It's almost doubling every time he goes home. And he starts paying for the costs, which amounted to probably $100,000. And... The large total of that $100,000 includes a large med medical bill for the treatment of gonorrhea and $21,000 for the destruction of his uninsured car, which these women borrowed. And so Dennis Wilson ends up singing and talking with Charles Manson, and both of them start treating these women as servants. And Dennis Wilson eventually pays for studio time to record songs written and performed by Charles Manson. And he starts interviewing, he starts introducing him to people he knows in the music business, including Greg Jacobison, Terry Melcher, Rudy Atabelli, just to name a few. And the last one, Rudy Altabelli, owns this house which he rents to Sharon Tate and her husband, Rowan Polanski. And Greg Jacobson, is impressed by this whole package that Charles Manson has. He's this artist. He's a lifestyle. His lifestyle is so fascinating. He's a philosopher. He ends up paying to record Charles Manson's music, which is speaks volumes on how manipulative Charles Manson was. So, Dennis Wilson eventually moves out of the house he's living in. He was renting it. The lease expired. He finally had enough of the Manson family. He just can't, he can't handle it anymore. So once his lease expires, the landlord evicts Manson family. Now, now Charles Manson has to find a home base. And he established it at this place called the Spawn Ranch. It's August. It's 1968. It's right after Dennis Wilson's landlord evicts them. And it actually was the Spawn Ranch... You've probably seen it. Um, it was a television and movie set for Westerns, but the buildings had deteriorated by the late 1960s. And the ranch revenue really just started getting its revenue from selling horseback rides. So what ends up happening is now Charlie and his followers live there. So these female family members will end up doing chores around the ranch and occasionally have sex with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner, George Spann. And they act as guides for him. And because he's getting this sexual gratification, George Spann allows Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free, which is gross. And we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about how he met all of his family members, but you'll hear probably sometimes... I'll say a name, and then their alias, because they all had aliases. So, Lynette Fromm actually acquired the nickname Squeaky because she would squeak when George Spann pinched her thigh. Another uh, person we'll talk about is Charles Watson. He was this Texan who had quit college and moved to California, and soon he was living at the ranch with the rest of the family. And like I said, there Charles Manson did so much manipulation that like 
they're often group orgies. If you weren't with Manson, you were against him. Any inhibitions you would have, that was the first thing to go. He would make sure you got high as a kite and as drunk as possible, and there would be these wild orgies. And it's bizarre to me, but when you're so broken down that you think somebody loves you, which is what I assume happened with these women. You're so broken down, you think somebody actually loves you, you want to keep holding on to that love. So, it's March 23rd, it's 1969. So Charles Manson goes on to 150 CeeLo Drive, which he sort of never got invited to, but he knew it was Melcher's residence. But he wasn't invited, so when he gets to the main house... Manson ends up meeting Shiraki Hatimi, and he's this Iranian photographer, and he was friends with Rowan Polanski and Sharon Tate, and he had met them during making a documentary film, and he was there to photograph Sharon Tate. She was going to Rome the next day, and he actually sees Charles Man Manson approaching, so Shiraki Hatimi goes onto the front porch. He's like, hi, can I help you? Is there something you need? Um, you know... And Charles Manson ends up saying he was looking for someone whose name that Hatimi did not recognize. And so Shirak Hatimi tells him, you know, the place is the Polanski residence. And you could try the back alley, which he meant was the path to the guest house past the main house. And he's kind of a little concerned that this person's here. He's not quite sure what's going on. So he starts kind of you know, going down to the front walk, he's going to confront Charles Manson, and then Sharon Tate appears behind him in the house's front door and asks him, like, who are you calling? Like, what's going on? And Chirac says, you know, that a man was looking for someone. And he and Sharon Tate maintain their positions while Charles Manson goes to the guest house without a word, and then he comes back a minute or two later, and he leaves. So Charles Manson waits till nightfall, and he goes back to the property again, and he goes to the guest house. And he goes right into the enclosed porch and he speaks with Atabelli, the owner. And he had just come out of the shower and Charles Manson's like, oh, well, I'm looking for, you know, this guy named Melcher. And, you know, Atabelli says, you know, I think you were just looking for me. And apparently it was discovered later on that Charles Manson had gone to the property earlier and on earlier occasions after Melcher left. So Atabelli tells him, you know what? Uh, Melcher's gone to Miami. I don't know his new address. I, you know, I, I don't know how you'd contact him. Although Altabelli knew, knows where he is and he's not going to give him the inter, the, he's not going to give him the information on how to contact this guy. He just, he's a little creeped out. And Altabelli says, you know, he was in the entertainment business. I, I met you last year at Dennis Wilson's home. And I'm sure that, you know, you already knew that. And here's the thing. When they'd met prior, he'd been given, he'd, he'd given limited compliments to Charles Manson on some of his musical recordings, which Dennis Wilson had been playing. So Altabelli tells Manson, you know, I'm leaving, I'm leaving the country, and if you want to talk to me when I get back, that's, that's perfect, we can talk about this then. But I'm going to be gone for more than a year. So Charles Manson says he's been directed to the guest house by the person in the main house. So now Altabelli tells him, don't disturb my tennis. Like, like that's enough now. So now Sharon, Tate, and Altabelli fly together to Rome the next day. And Sharon asks him whether that creepy-looking guy had gone to see him at the guest house the day before. So you have to think, like, there is so much to unpack. So... We're going to get into the nitty-gritty here. So, one of the grossest things that Charles Manson believed was that there was going to be this race war and it impeded the apocalypse and that the white man should come out on top, which is fucking disgusting. It's fucking disgusting that someone can believe that, like, race wars are, are like, cool. That's gross. Gross. Super fucking gross. 
Like, I, I can't even. I just think that's the stupidest shit I've ever heard. Um, with that being said, he also believed the Beatles' White Album was speaking to him. And that it was giving him little messages. So, here's the thing. Tex Watson was one of uh, the family members. And he started drug dealing, and he ends up robbing a drug dealer named Bernard Crowe. Now, the thing is, Crowe starts getting into it with Tex Watson, and he says, you know what? I'm going to go to Spawn Ranch. I'm going to kill every single one. So Charles Manson gets wind of this, and he goes and shoots Crowe on July 1st, 1969, at a Hollywood apartment. Now, Charles Manson believed that because he had killed Crow, he was seemingly confirmed... Pardon me. So, Manson believed that he had killed Crow, and it was and it was confirmed by a news report of the discovery of a dumped body of a Black Panther in L.A. But here's the thing. <laughs> Bernard Crow was not a member of the Black, Panther, Black Panthers. Charles Manson thought that he had shot a Black Panther, which was a very popular, and I think it is still very popular, I, I'm pretty sure it's still popular, um, African-American civil rights group. Um, he expected retaliation from the Black Panthers, and he would end up turning Spawn Ranch into a defensive camp. He would have night patrols by armed guards, Tex Watson would later write, this is so gross. I can't believe that people say shit like this. Like, I just... <sighs> so Tex Watson would later write, Blackie was trying to get at the Chosen Ones. And I think it's so fucking gross that you can say that. So, Charles Manson is starting to freak out a little bit. He brings members of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club to act as security. And it, it was a lot. It was a lot. And it was a lot of paranoia. Paranoia. So, this is at some point in the late 1960s. A man named Gary Hinman was a music teacher. He was a PhD student at UCLA. And he would occasionally befriend members of the Manson family. And occasionally he'd let them stay at his home. And one family member named Susan Atkins believed that Gary Hinman was wealthy. He would send family members, Bobby Bosol, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins to Gary Allen's home. Gary Allen Hinman, pardon me. And so, when Charles Manson sent his family members to Gary Hinman's home on July 25th, 1969, it was essentially to join, convince him to join the family and turn over any assets that Gary had to Manson. Anything that, you know, Gary would have inherited. So, when Susan, Bobby, and Mary go over to Gary's house, they ha they hold him hostage for around two days. And he denies, like, I don't have any money. What are you guys talking about? So, while he's being host held hostage for two days, Charles Manson arrives with a sword and slashes his face from ear to ear. And after that, Bobby stabs Gary Hinman to death, allegedly, apparently, on instruction from Charles Manson. And before they leave Gary Hinman's home, they decide to do something a little out of there. We're unsure as to whether or not it was Susan or Mary who wrote on the walls in Gary Hinman's blood, or possibly Bobby Bolso. But they wrote political piggy on the wall. And they drew a panther paw. Which was a symbol of the Black Panthers. So, Charles Manson's account of this is that Bobby Bosol went to Gary Hinman's house to recover some money. He had apparently gotten some mescaline from the straight Satans that had supposedly been bad. And, you know, it's so the whole thing was allegedly Gary Hinman had given bad mescaline to the straight Satans. 
And so Bobby adds that Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins are aware of this, and they go along with him to see Gary Atkins. Gary Atkins, pardon me. Gary Hinman. So Susan Atkins, in her 1977 autobiography, writes that Manson directed herself, Bobby Busso, Mary Brunner, to go to Gary Hinman's and get the supposed inheritance that he had of something like $21,000. So she also states that Charles told her that if she wanted to do something important, she could kill Gary Hinman and she could get his money. So Bobby's arrested August 6, 1969. And the reason he's arrested is because he was caught driving Gary Hinman's car. And they actually found the murder weapon in the tire well, which is um, where a spare tire would be. So this, this next one is the next... Um, this is pretty much the one murder that got it on the map. In terms of, like, how brutal this was, this was uh, probably one of the most brutal murders that the Manson family committed. So, this is such a hard one to talk about, too, because of, like, how brutal it became and what the aftermath was. So, it's August 8th, 1969. So, Tex Watt... Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Casabin, Patricia Krenwinkel go up to 150 Celo Drive in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles. So, if you recall, that was where Melcher was supposed to be staying, and Charles Manson kind of scoped out the place. So, Charles Manson allegedly tells Tex Watson, go to the house, destroy everything. Destroy everyone in it and do it as gruesomely as you can. And Manson allegedly tells the women to do as Watson instructs, instructs him. So here's who's at the house that night. Sharon Tate, who's eight and a half months pregnant. She's the wife of Roman Polanski. Jay Sebring, a noted celebrity hairstylist. Warchek Frowski. Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. And William Gerritsen, the caretaker, and Stephen Parent. Now, when Tex Watson and the three women arrive at Celo Drive just past midnight on August 9th, 1969, Tex Watson climbs a telephone pole near the entrance gate. He cuts the phone line. The group then backs the car to the bottom of the hill that leads to the estate. And they walk back up to the house. And the reason they did this is they thought the gate might be electrocute, electrocuted, electrified, or equipped with an alarm. So they actually start climbing a, a bush or a brushy embankment to the right of the gate, and they get on the property. So headlights approach them from within the property. Everybody starts lying in the bushes. Tex Watson tells the girls, just lay down in the bushes. And he steps out and he orders the approaching driver to halt. Stephen Parent, who'd been visiting the property's caretaker, this time it would have been William Gerritsen, who lived in the guest house. Tex Watson levels a 22 caliber rifle at Stephen Parent, and Stephen Parent is begging him, please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. Please just put the gun down. Please. Tex Watson lunges at him with a knife which he gets a defensive slash wound, slash wound on the palm of his hand he ends up stabbing or slashing Stephen Parent's hand so badly he severed tendons and tore the watch off his wrist which speaks volumes on how hard he would have been swinging that knife then he shoots him four times in the chest and the abdomen and he kills him in the front seat of a 1956 AMC Ambassador Coop. So now Tex tells the woman, push the car up farther up the driveway. So Tex cuts the screen of a window, and then here's where he tells Patricia Casbian, or pardon me, Linda Casbian, there's a lot of members of the, the Manson family. It's, it's, it's a lot. So he tells Linda Casbian, you gotta watch the gate. 
text removes the, removes the screen. He enters through the window. He lets Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkle in through the front door. He tells Susan Atkins, or he whispers to her, and this is what actually awoke somebody up, which was Wojciech Fryowski. And he was sleeping on the living room floor. Tex kicks him in the head. And Fryowski asks him, "Who? Are, what are you doing here? Like, get the fuck out. Tex Watson replies, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. As if that's not fucking disturbing. So now... Tex Watson starts directing what's going to happen. So Susan Atkins finds the house's three other occupants with Patricia Krenwinkel's help, and they force them into the living room. Now, Tex starts to tie up Sharon Tate and J.C. bring together by their necks because he had brought a rope with him, and then he slings it over one of the living room ceiling beams. And J.C. bring is, you know, he's protesting. He's like, you guys... I don't care what you do to me, but Sharon's pregnant. Like, you cannot do this to her. That baby didn't do anything. So Tex Watson shoots him. Abigail Folger was taken back to her bedroom for her purse, and she gifts the murderers. She gives all every family member there $70. Tex then stabs Jay Sebring seven times. So, Wojcik... Bryowski, I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, has his hands bound with a towel. He ends up freeing himself, and he begins starting to fight with Susan Atkins, but she ends up stabbing him in his legs with a knife. He fights his way out the front door, and he's onto the porch, and he's almost going to make it. He's almost going to get help. He has to get help for everyone in the house. Tex, Wils Te Tex Watson Catches up, catches up with him. He strikes him over the head with his gun multiple times, causing severe head trauma. Stabs him repeatedly and then shoots him twice, just for good measure, apparently. And Linda Casbian hears these horrifying sounds and she moves from her position in the driveway and she starts going towards the house and she tells Susan Atkins someone was coming in as in an attempt to stop the murderers. In the house, Abigail Folger escapes from Patricia Krenwinkel, and she's running. She's booking it out to the pool area. So Patricia pursues her, catches her on the front lawn. She stabs her and tackles her to the ground. Tex Watson then helps kill her. She's stabbed a total number of 28 times. Now, Fresky struggles against the lawn, but Tex still is stabbing him. He is stabbed 51 times, and he has been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun. So much, it bent the barrel and broke off one side of the gun grip, which ends up being taken as evidence at the scene. Sharon Tate's in the house, and she's begging, pleading, please just let me give birth. Please. Just... I just want my child to live, please. I'll, I'll be your hostage, please. Just let me live long enough to give birth. Susan Atkins and Tex Watson stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times. <sighs> now, according to Tex Watson, Manson says, you know, leave a sign, something witchy. Susan Atkins writes pig on the floor, her front door, in Sharon Tate's blood. And she claims that she did this to copycat the murder scene of Gary Hammond in order to get the Manson family, uh, Bobby Bosell family member, out of jail. And it's... She begged so... The thing is, Sharon Tate begged so hard and so long for her baby to survive. And that just... That's hard. That's hard. That's hard. So now, it's August 10th, 1969. Everybody who participated in the Sharon Tate murder goes out the next night, except now Charles Manson, Leslie Van Houten, Van Houten, pardon me, and Clem Grogan 
go for a drive. And Charles Manson is, you know, he's apparently displeased with the panic and flight of the victims of last night. He told Linda Casbian to drive to a house at 33 Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz section of L.A. Now, located next door to a home where Manson and his family members had attended a party last year. It was a supermarket executive, Leo LeBlanca, and his wife, Rosemary. Now, according to Susan Atkins and Linda Casbin, Charles Manson walks up the driveway and returns to say that he had tied the house's occupants up. And so Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Van Houten go in. And Tex claims in his autobiography that Charles Manson went up alone and then returned to take everybody up to the house with him. So Charles Manson points out a sleeping man through the window to Tex Watson, and the two go through the door. Now, Tex also claims that Charles Manson rouses the sleeping Lino LeBlanca from the couch at gunpoint, and Tex binds his hand with a leather thong. Rosemary's brought into the living room from the bedroom. And Tex covers the couple's heads with pillowcases, and he binds them in place with lamp cords. Manson leaves, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten enter the house. Now, Tex Watson complained to Charles Manson earlier of the inadequacy of the previous night's weapons. Like, he didn't think they had enough weapons to get the job done, and it was just, it was too much. So, now, Tex sends the women from the kitchen to the bedroom. Rosemary has been returned. So, Tex begins stabbing Lino LeBlanca with a chrome-plated bayonet. His first stab goes into his throat. Tex hears the scuffle in the bedroom and discovers that Rosemary had kept Leslie at bay by swinging a lamp, by swinging the lamp tied to her neck. So, with the other women that were there. He ends up stabbing her several times with a bayonet and then returns to the living room, and he keeps attacking Lino, and he stabs him a total number of 12 times. He then carves the word war into his abdomen. Tex goes back to the bedroom and finds Patricia Krenwinkel stabbing Rosemary with a knife from the kitchen. Leslie Van Houten stabs her 15, 16 times in the back and her butt. And Leslie claims at trial that Rosemary was already dead during the stabbing. And evidence will show that many of the 47 stab wounds had, in fact, been inflicted after death. That speaks volumes on how somebody treats someone else. Like, I know we're talking about a murder, but, like, what was the point of stabbing them when they're already dead? So now Tex cleans off the bayonet. He showers there. Patricia Krenwinkel writes, Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls and Helter Skelter on the fridge door all in LeBlanca's blood. She gave Lino LeBlanca 14 puncture wounds with an ivory-handled two-tinned carving fork, which she would end up leaving sticking out of his stomach. She also leaves a steak knife in his throat. Like, this isn't stuff you just can't make up. This is horrible. So now Charles Manson drives three other family members who had left the Spawn Ranch with him that evening. And they're going to an actor's house called Saladin Nadar. And Charles Manson leaves these three family members, drives back to Span Ranch, leaving them and everybody else at the Lavanka house to hitchhike home. So he drives three family members to a party. Everybody else who's committed murder, too fucking bad. You guys can hitchhike home, full of friggin' blood. Like, so, apparently, according to him, when he went back to the Spawn Ranch that evening, he wanted three family members to murder Saladin Nadar in his apartment. But he drops off Linda Caspian there. And she claimed she had thwarted this murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong apartment door and waking a stranger. 
And now the group has to abandon the murder plan and leave. But Susan Atkins poops in a stairwell on the way out. So when I say three people, it was Susan Atkins, Linda Casbian, and Leslie Hooten was who we took after the LeBlanca murders. Anyways, so the group of men abandons the murder plan and they leaves, leave. But Susan Atkins has to take a poop in the hall. So here's the thing. They don't get away for long. So we know that the five perpetrators, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Charles Manson, Leslie Hooten, and Tex Watson were each tried and convicted for their roles in the Tate-Lavanka murders. Originally, each defendant received a death sentence, but then the state's current death penalty laws were considered unconstitutional, which the fact that what we know about the murders is pretty messed up. So Susan Atkins, 1948-2009, to remained in prison until her death from brain cancer at age 61 in 2009. At the time of her death, she was California's longest-serving female inmate. She had been denied parole 14 times. Her request for compassionate release was also denied because she had brain cancer. Patricia Krenwinkel, born 1947. She's still in jail. Um, she did, following the death of Susan Atkins, she is now the longest incarcerated female to be in, a Californ in the California penal system. She has also been denied parole 14 times, most recently in 2017. And so here's the thing. She was actually... Her, she had a parole panel recommended her release for the first time in May of 2022. However, it was overturned by the California governor and said she shouldn't be getting on. Leslie Van Houten was born in 1949. Upon her conviction and death sentence at the age of 21 in 1971, she became the youngest woman ever to put on California's death. She was the youngest member of the Manson family for convicted murder. So, here's the thing. She was later retried and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. She's still in jail. She's been denied parole 22 times. Her three most recent parole hearings, Leslie was approved by for parole by the board, but in each case, her the board's decision was overturned by the governor. Tex Watson is still incarcerated. He's been denied parole 17 times, most recently in 2021. And he has become a born-again Christian. Now, I want to talk about Charles Manson for a sec. For a sec, this whole thing has been about Charles Manson, right? So, he actually was imprisoned until his death from cardiac arrest. Following respiratory failure from colon cancer. So, he died November 19th, 2017. And he was actually a few days past his 83rd birthday. And he had spent all but 13 years of his life in prison, reformatory, or voice home. And he was denied parole 12 times. After 1997, he just refused to go to any of his parole hearings. So, here's the thing. There is so much about him that's just bizarre when we discuss that. So, I mean, there are suspected murders that he has probably done. One murder that we do know is he very rarely got his um, hands dirty with a murder. But on December 13th, 1971, we're going to backtrack for a second. He actually, not 1971. August of 1969, he shot Donald Jerome Shorty Shea on Swan Ranch. Just took him out and shot him in the desert. Um. So when we talk about the rest of Charles Manson's life, he was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. However, his initial death sentence was modified to life on February 2nd, 1977. So if we talk about the 1980s, or the beginning of the 1980s, Manson was actually eligible to apply for parole after seven years of incarceration. 
his first parole hearing was rejected on November 16th, 1978. So when we talk about the 80s and the 90s for Charles Manson, this is when things get weird. So one of the things that his followers did during his trial is they would put swastikas on their foreheads or they would have X's on their foreheads that he would have carved or his followers would have carved in their heads. So Manson's forehead would have a swastika in the spot where an X would have been carved in his, in his head, on his forehead, when his trial had been. So there, in a 1989 interview, it was concluded that Manson wasn't insane, but he merely acted that way because he was so frustrated. So that is irrelevant, in my opinion. Um, so Manson was in prison in the California Medical Facility at Bakerville. So it's September 25th, 1984. Jan Holstrom pours paint thinner on Charles Manson and sets him on fire, causing second and third degree burns over 20% of his body. Now, when Jan Holstrom's asked, why did you do this? He goes, well, Charles Manson objected to my Hare Krishna chants and threatened me. So there goes that in terms of like, you can tell just by that statement alone, how Charles Manson was incredibly racist. So it's after 1989 and Charles Manson ends up being housed in protective housing because that that episode alone shows that people hated him so much. But it's almost like Charles Manson wanted to get caught so he had to still stay in prison. So he's still in protective housing and it's found that he'd been trafficking drugs and he was moved from the prison he was in which was Corn State Prison to Pelican Bay Strait Prison. So he's he moved from the California State Prison, Horican, to San Quentin State Prison, California Medical Facility in Vacaville, Folsom State Prison, and Pelican Bay State Prison. So now it's 2007, and there's a complete version of an interview at the San Quentin State Prison of an interview with Charles Manson, and it's messed up. It's so messed up that it was considered so unbelievable that only seven minutes of it originally had been broadcast. So, it's 2011, and there's this photograph that Manson has shown up. And Manson has this receding hairline, he's got a gray beard, and he still has this swastika tattoo on his forehead. And it's just, that's, that's what he looked like. And people were a little shocked that this man was so prolific. And then Manson gets caught with a cell phone in 2009. He's talking to people in California, New Jersey, Florida, British Columbia, Canada. They didn't know that Manson had used the phone for criminal purposes. They didn't even know that he used it. But he was using it to record an album of acoustic pop songs. That's what he was using it for. The album is not available out. And what... So here's the thing. Here's the thing that... Uh, is so bizarre to me. So it's January 2017. And Manson's still in prison. He's rushed to the hospital... Because he had gastrointestinal bleeding. And he's very ill. And the doctors considered him too weak for surgery. He was returned to prison on January 6th, and his treatment, nobody knew what it was. November 15th, 2017, Manson returned back to a hospital. So, this is when he dies. He dies from cardiac arrest, resulting in respiratory failure, brought on by colon cancer. So, here's the thing. He uh, decided in 2014 to become engaged to a woman named Afton Elaine Burton. And they got a marriage license on November 7th. He gave her the nickname Star. And she'd been visiting him in prison for the last nine years. And she would proclaim his innocence. And they get married February 5th, 2015. 
And here's the thing. There were rumors that Afton only wanted to marry him so that she could use his corpse as a tourist attraction after his death. And Charles Manson actually believed he would never die. He used the possibility of marriage as a way to encourage Afton to continue visiting him and bringing him gifts. And she states on her website that the reason the marriage, you know, that there was no actual marriage ceremony was because Charles Manson was sick. He couldn't receive visitors. She said that, you know, she hoped the marriage license would be renewed and the marriage would take place. Like, they had the marriage license, but the wedding license would expire on February 5th, 2015. So they never technically had a marriage license, but I know I just said that they did, but they didn't actually get married. Pardon me. So she still hoped that the marriage would take place and that, you know, they would, they would get married. But Manson also had one surprising visitor that would come visit him, one of his grandchildren. And when he died, there was a fight over his corpse and his grandson tried so hard to bring Charles Manson home and like have his cremated remains with him because he was he his grandson believed that Charles Manson was this wonderful man who just like got led astray it, it it's it's bizarre i've heard the interview and he talks about what a great man Charles Manson was and what a great impact he was on his life and how he taught him so much about himself and how grateful he was to have met him. And I'm like, ooh, that's kind of gross. So his body actually is, uh, he was, bleh, pardon me. So here's the thing. So allegedly Manson's grandson, Jason Freeman, took possession of Charles Manson's remains and his personal effects. And it actually went all the way to court and he won. And he had his body cremated and uh, thought he did the best that he could. But this is really like, like I said, his grandson thought that Charles Manson was this wonderful guy and it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that, like, somebody can think that. So this was our our prelude to... Not prelude, but this was our brief history of Charles Manson. And if you look at the interviews with Charles Manson, there's... Even, like, read a book about what happened, and it'll go much more in-depth than I did. Um, yeah. it's It's fascinating to see the psychology behind it. So... Next episode will be our fan requested one. I'm really excited. I'm going to go start doing research on that one now until we meet again.